Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 48. Well, after having read of the evil designs of Amalekiah and his alarming success in carrying out these designs, we're provided with a contrast in Alma, chapter 48, between Amalekiah and Captain Moroni. And we'll see that Captain Moroni had success in his own right as a follower of Christ and a leader of the people and a protector of a land of liberty. We've seen this contrast between these two characters throughout the account so far. We saw it especially in Alma chapter 46. So we'll kind of return to that theme here where we'll see the contrasting motives between these two leaders. And it's in this chapter where Mormon will pause for more editorial commentary and it's some of his most memorable editorial commentary throughout his entire abridgment. He pauses to talk about the greatness of Moroni and what it was that made him so special. He'll tell us very famously in this chapter that if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would have no power over the hearts of the children of men. Having just read in Alma chapter 47 of a leader who was clearly inspired by the devil and who resembles Lucifer himself in the way that he rose to power, this is a refreshing statement indeed to read in Alma chapter 48, verse 17. And we're grateful that Mormon has provided us with this contrast so that we can see another leader who operates in an entirely different way. Of this contrast and of the leadership methods of Moroni, Ogden and Skinner have written, Moroni didn't just prepare his people with armaments. He prepared their minds to be faithful to God. The Nephites' most dangerous enemy was not outside the city walls, but inside the people's hearts. Nephite pride was more dangerous than Lamanite aggression. Still, Moroni strengthened their defensive fortifications. President Gordon B. Hinckley declared, We are people of peace. We are followers of the Christ, who was was and is the Prince of Peace. But there are times when we must stand up for right and decency, for freedom and civilization, just as Moroni rallied his people in his day to the defense of their wives, their children, and the cause of liberty. Nephites were taught to defend themselves even if it meant some died because a defensive war was justifiable. They were also never to give offense. If they lived righteously, God would be their chief strategist and would prosper them. An impressive group of leaders arose during this preparatory period before the coming of the Savior. The mighty men of God preparing the way were Ammon and the other sons of Mosiah, Alma and his sons, Helaman and his brethren, and Moroni. Of all these great leaders, the superlative exclamation was recorded that if all men were like Moroni, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever, and the evil one would be powerless to influence the children of men. I think this can remind us that in our modern times, in our times of peril, 
that we can expect the same pattern from the Lord, that he will provide servants that are similarly inspired, and we can heed their words and heed their counsel, and in so doing we will be spiritually prepared for the onslaught that surrounds us and is to come. Alma chapter 48 has 25 verses, and the first two verses show us how Amalekiah is using propaganda to incite the Lamanites. So remember from the previous chapter, Amalekiah is now the king. Previously, we noticed in chapter 47 that the Lamanite king compelled or tried to compel the Lamanites to go to battle against the Nephites. Amazingly, all of this was because Amalekiah had inspired him to do so. But he used a proclamation for that. The proclamation wasn't successful, and there was a breakoff group, and Lehontai was their leader. Now that Amalekiah is in power, he doesn't go straight to a proclamation. We'll discover here in verses 1 and 2 that he uses his great talents instead, and he uses propaganda to incite the Lamanites to anger. This way, he can make it so that these Lamanites are intrinsically motivated to come into Lamanite lands, or excuse me, into Nephite lands, and to attack them. It says in verse 1 that he did appoint men to speak unto the Lamanites from their towers against the Nephites, and thus he did inspire their hearts against the Nephites. So that's what was missing from the proclamation that we read of in the previous chapter. That king of the Lamanites was not nearly as coy, and Amalekiah appreciated the role of propaganda and knew that these Lamanites needed this grievance narrative to be reiterated over and over again so that this narrative could gain strength and that they would move forward in their hatred against the Nephites. There's some interesting modern-day parallels as we think about that. So having done this, now we see that Amalickiah gathers a numerous host, and as he gathers them in verses 3 through 6, he appoints their captains. And notice that he appoints Zoramites as their captains. We're told that he did this in verse 5 because the Zoramites were the most acquainted with the strength of the Nephites and their places of resort in the weakest parts of their cities. So these Lamanites are fueled by hatred. They have a numerical advantage, and now they have this terrible strategic advantage where these Zoramite leaders within the Lamanite army uh, have a great deal of knowledge about the Nephite nation. So that is what we read about Amalickiah's preparation of the Lamanites for their attack upon the Nephites in verses 1 through 6. Propaganda and then specific strategic moves. Now we're going to read in verses 7 through 10 about Moroni's preparation for the Lamanite attack. We'll discover that his preparation has to do with erecting small forts and places of walls and fortification. He does this in several places, and he he fortifies places that are the weakest. And, of course, this would have run counter to what the Zoramite leaders expected to encounter when they came into the Nephite nation. Then here's this break in the chapter where Mormon pauses and provides us with commentary on Moroni's character. He does this in verses 11 through 19. He starts by saying that Moroni was a strong and a mighty man. Well, Amlici, or excuse me, well, probably Amlici too, but Amalickiah was also described as a strong man. But in this case, Moroni is described as a man of perfect understanding and that did not delight in bloodshed. So he's a very different creature than Amalickiah and is uh, motivated by different things. Then finally, 
In verses 20 through 25, Mormon will discuss the Nephites' attitude generally towards war. He'll say in verse 21 that they were compelled reluctantly to contend with who? Their brethren. And their brethren is the term that they used. That's a term that the people of Ammon or the anti-Nephi-Lehi's used when they were attacked by the Lamanites. This reveals their attitude towards their attackers. They considered them their brethren. Then verse 23 will say that they were sorry to take arms against the Lamanites because they did not shed or they did not delight in the shedding of blood. So this is a fascinating passage and of course gives us insight into what our modern day attitudes towards war should be even in the event that we are compelled to take up arms and go against our brethren. Something, of course, that has already happened a great deal in the last century. So returning now to the text, uh, verse 1, And now it came to pass that as soon as Amalickiah had obtained the kingdom, he began to inspire the hearts of the Lamanites against the people of Nephi. Yea, he did appoint men to speak unto the Lamanites from their towers against the Nephites. So again, very interesting. He doesn't go straight to a, a, a proclamation, an edict. He doesn't compel the Lamanites. He needs them to be intrinsically motivated to go against the Nephites. And he knows that a false narrative, uh, a grievance narrative that is delivered through propaganda is the way to accomplish this. Verse 2, And thus he did inspire their hearts against the Nephites, insomuch that in the latter end of the nineteenth year of the reign of the judges, he having accomplished his designs thus far, yea, having been made king over the Lamanites, he sought also to reign over all the land, yea, and all the people who were in the land, the Nephites as well as the Lamanites. So now our mouths open even a little bit wider, I think, as we read this account of Amalickiah, that it doesn't end there, as I mentioned in the introduction to the previous chapter, that his ambition and the scope of his ambition just kept expanding. He wanted to be king over everything, Nephites as well as Lamanites. Now, verse 3, Therefore he, Amalickiah, had accomplished his design, for he had hardened the hearts of the Lamanites and blinded their minds, and stirred them up into anger. So again, this is through this propaganda campaign that we have read of in these first two verses, insomuch that he had gathered together a numerous host to go to battle against the Nephites. So the gathering of the host, again, was preceded by propaganda. Hugh Nibley said Amalickiah's big problem was to get the Lamanites to fight for him, and no professional public relations office could have done a more skillful job than he did. He did appoint men to speak unto the Lamanites from their towers against the Nephites, trained orators delivering set speeches from the official information centers, accusing, always accusing. This last point by Nibley is something for us to ponder on as well, that this tone of accusation undoubtedly permeated this propaganda that was being delivered from these trained orators. It would seem that whenever uh, there's a cry for justice and that there is blame being levied, that a grievance narrative is something that's being put forward and that we should have our antenna raised for that type of message and to be very wary of it. Verse 4, For he, Amalickiah, was determined because of the greatness of the number of his people to overpower the Nephites and to bring them into bondage. Again, so that he can take over everything and be king over the entire land. And thus he did appoint chief captains of the Zoramites, they being the most acquainted with the strength of the Nephites and their places of resort, and the weakest parts of their cities, 
Therefore, he appointed them to be chief captains over his armies. So we can see just how inspired it is later when we read that Moroni will strengthen the weakest parts of the Nephite nation, uh, because that's going to run counter to the expectations of these Zoramite leaders. So that's a very inspired response. John Tavetnus has written, The Zoramites had likely been military leaders among the Nephites prior to their defection to the Lamanites. So Tavetnus here is suggesting that these Zoramites already had military prowess and had already functioned as such within the, the, the Nephite lands, and so they would have known them in this tactical and strategic way. Then he continues, In the same account, we learn that it was the Zoramite chief captains who had introduced shields, breastplates, and armor, thick clothing, to the Lamanites. These implements had aided the Nephites during the previous battles against the Lamanites. And so now we'll, we'll discover that, that they will no longer have that disadvantage, uh, that, that disadvantage that, that showed in so prominently or that figured in so prominently to the battle that was accounted for in Alma chapters 43 and 44 when the Lamanites had no armor. Verse 6, And it came to pass that they took their camp and moved forth toward the land of Zarahemla in the wilderness. So, Amalickiah has accomplished his designs. He has incited these Lamanites to anger. They are motivated to go to battle, and they have now mobilized. They're moving towards Zarahemla. We'll learn what happens next, actually, just when we're peaked, and we wish we could learn right away, but we'll learn what happens next in the next chapter. So, for the remainder of this chapter, things become more philosophical. And Mormon will provide us with this commentary on Moroni's character, and he'll talk about Nephite motivation and their attitude towards war, which is a very important thing to establish before we move into Alma chapter 49. Then, uh, before he does that, though, Mormon will tell us in these first or in these four verses, seven, eight, nine, and ten, about Moroni's preparation for the Lamanite attack. So, verse seven. Now it came to pass that while Amalickiah had thus been obtaining power by fraud and deceit. Moroni, on the other hand, had been preparing the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord their God. Yea, he had been strengthening the armies of the Nephites and erecting small forts or places of resort, throwing up banks of earth round about to enclose his armies, and also building walls of stone to encircle them about, round about their cities and the borders of their lands, yea, all round about the land. And in their weakest fortifications he did place the greater number of men. And thus he did fortify and strengthen the land which was possessed by the Nephites. And thus he was preparing to support their liberty, their lands, their wives, and their children, and their peace, that they might live unto the Lord their God, and that they might maintain that which was called by their enemies the cause of the Christians. So there Mormon is returning us to this sense of cause, the cause of the Christians. And he's, he's recalibrating us as readers to that, reminding us that that is the motivation of these Nephites. And again, he's showing us how Mormon in, or Moroni ingeniously is strengthening the weakest fortifications and putting the greatest number of men there. With respect to this cause of Christians, the Institute Manual says, sometimes true followers of Christ must stand as Moroni's people stood in defense of their liberty, their lands, their wives, and their children, and their peace. Moroni was intent on helping his people maintain that which was called by their enemies the cause of Christians. With the tide of wickedness in the world today, President Gordon B. Hinckley has advocated that there are times when we must stand up for right and decency, for freedom and civilization, just as Moroni rallied his people in his day to the defense of their wives, their children, and the cause of liberty. 
Now, moving into this next memorable section, verses 11 through 19, where Mormon will comment on Moroni's character. Verse 11, And Moroni was a strong and a mighty man. He was a man of a perfect understanding, yea, a man that did not delight in bloodshed, a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. Yea, a man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God, for the many privileges and blessings which he bestowed upon his people, a man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and safety of his people. Yea, and he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ, and he had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, and his country, and his religion, even to the loss of his blood. Now this seems to have reference to the oath that Moroni made in Alma chapter 46. It's interesting how that oath was completely self-imposed. Verse 14. Now, the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even to the shedding of blood if it were necessary, yea, and they were also taught never to give an offense, yea, and never to raise the sword except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. Here's some commentary from Brent Merrill on the motivation... Uh, the difference, the, the the comparison and motivation between the Lamanites and the Nephites as they come into, into war. And of course, this is something that Mormon will bring us back to at the end of this as well. But here's a good time to read this. So he says, A common objective of Lamanite warfare was to bring the Nephites into captivity. Nephites living under Lamanite control were normally required to pay tribute. We can think of Zenith there. And when captured in battle, they were usually taken back to become slaves or to be sacrificed. Nephite objectives were usually much different. At least as long as the people were living righteously, they were inspired by a better cause, for they were not fighting for monarchy nor power, but they were fighting for their homes and their liberties, their wives and their children, and their all, yea, for their rights of worship and their church. The Nephites were additionally taught never to give an offense. This teaching had practical, moral, and spiritual value. Note that the Nephites were always far fewer in number than the Lamanites. In about 120 B.C., the people of Nephi and the people of Zarahemla together were not half as numerous as the Lamanites. If anything, this situation probably grew more severe over the years because of Nephite dissensions. That observation, by the way, was made in Mosiah chapter 25, verse 3, where clear back then, that was kind of when the Nephites and the Zarahemlaites combined together, but they still were not half as numerous as the Lamanites. As a result, it was imprudent for the Nephites. Let's see, I I may not have read this statement. Uh, If I did, forgive me. But if anything, this situation, in other words, this asymmetry, the way in which the Lamanites outnumbered the Nephites, probably grew more severe over the years because of Nephite desertions. As a result, it was imprudent for the Nephites to initiate hostilities and to rely much on offensive operations. Instead, the Nephites became more adept at using fortifications to achieve local economy of forces and maintained a grand strategy of protecting the land north of the narrow neck of land. Fortifications which needed relatively few men to man became force multipliers by means of which the Nephites could extend a combat front and served as a base of maneuver for mobile field forces. This was an effective use of one principle of war, the economy of forces. Even in situations where the Nephites may have faced an enemy of more equal numbers, they were counseled not to strike first. Another consequence of this Nephite emphasis is on defensive strategy, was that almost all battles took place within their own territory. It is therefore easy to see why the rewards and motivation for victory were quite different for the Nephites than for the Lamanites. 
Nephite forces were probably compensated with not much more than a basic subsistence allowance for their military service, while at least some Lamanite soldiers were probably promised a share in the spoils of war in return for their participation in the armed forces. Nevertheless, Nephite captains found that by reminding their soldiers that they were fighting to preserve their family groups and entire social structure, they were usually more successful in motivating troops than were the Lamanite captains. Now returning to verse 15 and this discussion of the motivation of the Nephites and how it was that they were taught to defend themselves against their enemies and never to give an offense. Verse 15 says, And this was their faith, that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land. Or in other words, if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land. Yea, warn them to flee or to prepare for war according to their danger. And also that God would make it known unto them whither they should go to defend themselves against their enemies. And by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. Of course, we saw an example of that when the Alma, through his gift of prophecy and through Moroni's reconnaissance, they realized that they should go to the land of Manti and defend that place. So here, Mormon is talking about how this worked for the Nephites, that they'd be told whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemies. And by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. And this was the faith of Moroni. And his heart did glory in it, not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good in preserving his people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God, yea, and resisting iniquity. Yea, now returning to this idea of Moroni's greatness, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Now, as we might expect, there's quite a lot of commentary on that great verse. First from Ogden and Skinner. The towering greatness of Moroni is described. His attributes and spiritual power are those that will bind Satan during the millennium. In speaking to the missionaries at the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah, Elder Charles Didier of the Seventy once said that if we were all like Moroni, truly baptized by the Holy Ghost, we wouldn't need all the rules to dictate behavior. President Ezra Taft Benson once said part of the reason we may not have sufficient priesthood bearers to save the Constitution let alone to shake the powers of hell, is because unlike Moroni, I fear, our souls do not joy in keeping our country free, and we are not firm in the faith of Christ, nor have we sworn with an oath to defend our rights and the liberty of our country. Uh, He said that in a a conference report at one time in 1966. Uh, Pretty chilling. Thomas Arvaleta has written, Mormon masterfully abridged the scriptural record about Moroni demonstrating to his anticipated readers that this was a man most needed not only for his day, but also for our own. Captain Moroni endures as a model of courage and righteousness to many Latter-day Saints. In Mormon's view, Captain Moroni exemplified the model Nephite disciple of Christ. Implicit in Mormon's description of Moroni is the prophetic model of a man who understood the nature and value of covenant-making and keeping. McConkie and Millet have written, This brief tribute to Captain Moroni seems to include all that we could hope for or desire in our quest to overcome Satan. Moroni obviously understood Satan, his characteristics, and his goals. He recognized the means by which Satan was gaining power over his people. Of course, we can remember what we just read in Alma chapter 47. Finally, and most important, he understood the things that he and his people must do to overcome the adversary in their lives, and he led out by example binding Satan in his own life. 
And I, I apologize, I misspoke. That was actually from Clyde Williams in his article, Book of Mormon and Overcoming Satan. Now this is from Og, or excuse me, McConkie and Millet. Uh, in their description, or in Mer- Mer- Mormon's description of Captain Moroni and how it represented all of his fellow righteous military leaders, uh, McConkie and Millet said, they, they were not bloodthirsty. They hated war and hated the thought of shedding the blood of their brethren. They utilized clever strategy regularly, not only to win the war more rapidly, but also to save lives on both sides. Later in the story, Mormon points out that it was the custom among the Nephites to appoint for their chief captains, save it were in their times of wickedness, someone that had the spirit of revelation and also prophecy. Third Nephi chapter 3 verse 19 tells us that. Now finally, this from Dean Garrett. Moroni remained righteous, strong, and powerful even in an environment where death, suffering, pain, and hatred became the norm. The question can then be asked, can a Latter-day Saint be righteous in a military environment? The answer, based on Moroni's experience, is yes. And of course, we can add to that 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 would be based upon Mormon's experience as well, since that was the milieu in which he grew up. Now, verse 18, Behold, he, Moroni, was a man like unto Ammon, the son of Mosiah. Yea, and even the other sons of Mosiah, yea, and also Alma and his sons, for they were all men of God. Now, behold, Helaman and his brethren were no less serviceable unto the people than was Moroni. For they did preach the word of God, and they did baptize into repentance all men, whosoever would hearken unto their words. Now, we'll talk about uh, no less serviceable here in just a moment. But notice also that simply by mentioning Helaman, we can see that what we're reading is a two-pronged approach um, to reforming the Nephite nation and staving off the onslaught of the Lamanites. Uh, this involved the preaching of the word of God from Helaman's side of things and the, the, um, the temporal preparation and defense of the Nephite nation from Moroni's side of things. Now back to this phrase, no less serviceable. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, what does it mean that Helaman was no less serviceable? President Howard W. Hunter taught that all righteous service is equally acceptable to God, even though not everyone will serve in prominent callings. Even though Helaman was not as noticeable or conspicuous as Moroni, he was as serviceable. That is, he was as helpful or useful as Moroni. Not all of us are going to be like Moroni catching the acclaim of our colleagues all day, every day. Most of us will be quiet, relatively unknown folks who come and go and do our work without fanfare. To those of you who may find that lonely or frightening or just unspectacular, I say you are no less serviceable than the most spectacular of your associates. You too are part of God's army. Consider, for example, the profound service a mother or father gives in the quiet anonymity of a worthy Latter-day Saint home. Think of the gospel doctrine teachers and primary choristers and scoutmasters and Relief Society visiting teachers who serve and bless millions, but whose names will never be publicly applauded or featured in the nation's media. Tens of thousands of unseen people make possible our opportunities and happiness every day. As the scriptures state, they are no less serviceable than those whose lives are on the front pages of newspapers. The limelight of history and contemporary attention so often focuses on the one rather than on the many. Now in these final verses, verse 22 through 30, or 25, uh, Mormon will tell us 
about the Nephite's attitude towards war. He spoke of it a little bit in the teens of this chapter as he was discussing Moroni. Now we'll come back to it here. And thus they went forth, and the people did humble themselves because of their words, insomuch that they were highly favored of the Lord. And thus they were free from wars and contentions among themselves, yea, even for the space of four years. So we're coming back to that idea, and that is continuity from what we are told at the end of Alma chapter 46, where there was a space of peace for four years, where, where Mormon is preparing us for this great war which is about to begin in Alma chapter 49. But as I have said, and remember, it's the word here that's in action, and it's what's causing the people to humble themselves. But as I have said in the latter end of the 19th year, yea, notwithstanding their peace amongst themselves, they were compelled reluctantly to contend with their brethren, the Lamanites. So again, but as I have said, has reference to Alma 46. Mormon is repeating this idea that they had this period of peace and then it came to an end at the latter end of the 19th year. Yea, and in fine, their wars never did cease for the space of many years with the Lamanites, notwithstanding their much reluctance. So that's how things are to be here as we move into Alma 49. Now they were sorry to take up arms against the Lamanites, because they did not delight in the shedding of blood. Yea, and this was not all, they were sorry to be the means of sending so many of their brethren out of this world into an eternal world, unprepared to meet their God. So here they're showing this same attitude and this same understanding that the people of Ammon showed in Alma chapter 24. Nevertheless, they could not suffer to lay down their lives that their wives and their children should be massacred by the barbarous cruelty of those who were once their brethren. Yea, and had dissented from their church and had left them and had gone to destroy them by joining the Lamanites. Again, just notice that all of this has to do with the dissenters first. And it's the Lamanites who are then persuaded to come along for the ride. That's kind of the way most of this is portrayed. So we can think deeply about that and the the effect of dissension. Verse 25, Yea, and they could not bear that their brethren should rejoice over the blood of the Nephites, so long as there were any who should keep the commandments of God. For the promise of the Lord was, if they should keep his commandments, they should prosper in the land. So that statement shows yet one more time as Mormon offers his commentary. President Russell M. Nelson once pointed out that this divine teaching stated in the scriptures not once but 34 times is that people will prosper in the land only if they obey the commandments of God. President Nelson, as he does in his magnificent talks, uh, provides scriptural examples in the footnotes of all of these instances, all 34 times. He shows it in Leviticus and in Joshua and in Kings, in Chronicles, in Ezra, uh, and then throughout the, uh, well, Job as well, actually. And then, of course, throughout the Book of Mormon in First Nephi and Second Nephi, many references there. It is stated in Jerem and in Omni, uh, several times in Mosiah, many, many times in Alma, and stated in Helaman and in Third Nephi, and actually also in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verse 13 which says, Do this thing which I have commanded you, and you shall prosper. Be faithful and yield to no temptation. Well, we have seen in this chapter how Amalickiah prepared the Lamanites for battle. He did so again with propaganda and with narrative, a grievance narrative, and he incited them to violence and to war. Then we see how it is that Moroni prepared his people and what the people's attitudes were towards going to war. 
So now, in a sense, as readers, we have been prepared with all of this understanding before we move into the theater of war, figuratively speaking, as we read what is to come in Alma chapter 49. So for now, this brings us to the end of this chapter, Alma chapter 48. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.